Take your Bibles, if you would, with me this evening and turn to Romans chapter 12. Let us love one another. Last time we were together in, first, in our First John series, we're in a little mini-series on loving one another, uh, we defined love itself from 1 Corinthians 13. How indeed can we love the brethren if we do not understand what love is? And today we come to the substance of the Bible's teaching on the topic of loving the brethren, an exhortation by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, which calls us unto a very particular relationship one with another. So, Pastor, how is it that I love the brethren? Well, first we understand uh, the gradations of priorities as it relates to our love. It is not that we love someone else with a lesser love we, than, 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 than another. It's not that, that the person that is an unbeliever or the person who is uh, my neighbor gets lesser of a love than the person who is in my church, but the person who is in my church gains a higher priority to my love, a higher priority than those who are around me otherwise. And so we are called to love all men, to do good unto all men, but especially to those who are of the household of faith, that we are called to particular favor of those who are fellow believers. And as a subset of those, particularly as we saw the weak and the vulnerable in our midst, along with our blood family, of which if a man does not provide for his own house, he has denied the faith and indeed is worse than an infidel. And so we thought through that process. And then last week we defined what, uh, not last week, but last time we were together, we defined what love is from 1 Corinthians 13, understanding through that great chapter and uh, a recognition of the kind of selfless, sacrificial idea that love embodies. Now, the remainder of our series is going to focus not upon loving our neighbor really in any sort of a way, but really upon loving the brethren. This is the, the fundamental essence of the, the answer to the question, how to love the brethren? What does it look like to love the brethren as First John commands? And as we break this up, I'm going to address this in the context of the local church. We talked two weeks ago about the fact that in our culture and time, the most natural outworking of the highest priorities in loving the brethren is realized through the local church. Now, the way this plays out in our churches is not necessarily going to be the same as it will in, in another church. Every church might have a slightly different way that this idea of loving the brethren and prioritizing the brethren plays out, especially as we look beyond the Western church to other cultures and other time periods, each of which has its own expectations and needs upon them, so that as I walk through these commands, they make the most sense to us in the Western world in 2023, these commands will make the most sense to us as you think about the men and women who are among you this evening. The body of believers, and particularly for those of you who are members, the membership of the body. And remember, we're breaking this up into four primary principles. The principle of divine example, the principle of need, the principle of truth, and the principle of the weaker brethren. And this week, we consider directly the principle of divine example. Next week, we'll do need. The week after that, truth. And then that final week will be the weaker brethren principle. And so tonight, we consider divine example. 
that we treat others as a reflection of Christ's example toward us. And really, that's exactly what Paul is teaching us in Romans chapter 12. That as he's writing to the church at Rome, he is calling them to live among themselves as Christ did with them. 21 verses of instruction on interaction within the assembly and what it ought to look at. So we begin in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where the Bible says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable, and perfect will of God. So the Epistle of Romans is broken up into four primary sections, and I've taught this before. Chapters 1 through 5 of Romans is speaking particularly concerning the idea or the theme of justification by faith. The just shall live by faith, and Romans 1 through 5 are justifying that teaching on the just living by faith. Then in Romans chapter 6 through 8, uh, we see Paul speak of the, fr- of the freedom that this justification affords us from sin in our lives. And so we see there the theme of living in freedom from your sin because of the justification that you have through Jesus Christ alone. Then in Romans chapters 9 through 11, it's almost like a parenthetical where Paul answers the question, well, what about the Jews, right? We see all of this as it relates to the church, but what about Israel? What about God's promises to Israel? And he speaks to that idea that though the Jews are at this time enemies of the gospel, and indeed, uh, to this day and for the past really 2,000 years, they have been the enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ outright. Oh, rug there. I'll make sure that that doesn't happen again. Get rid of that fold. Uh, they reject the gospel of Jesus Christ outright. Yet Romans 11 tells us that though they are enemies of the gospel, yet they are still elect unto a plan, unto God's continued plan, his specific promises, and that God has not forgotten or rejected his people. And then finally, in Romans chapters 12 through 16, Paul gives the practical applications to everything that he's taught. If indeed we are justified by faith, if indeed this means that we are freed from sin, if indeed God still has a plan for the Jews, but that's for, 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 for later, that, that God will reinitiate his plan with them. But for us, um, we, we, are, we are his people right now, and, and he's working through us right now. Well then, how should we live? And Romans chapter 12 is the beginning of that section of how should we live. If we are God's people by justification, grace through faith, if we are freed from sin, how should we live? And this chapter in particular expresses what such truths ought to mean for the assembly of believers. Not just individually how should we live, but quite practically, as a church, corporately, how should we live? If you are saved, if you have been freed from sin, if you are no longer under said bondage, if you are no longer under the law but under grace, if the Spirit of God is in you, if He has freed you from these things, what should your interaction in the body of believers look like? And as we would expect from our study last time on love, Paul begins his exhortations with a foundational call unto personal sacrifice. See, because that's what love is, right? If we want to talk about love, we are talking about 
Sacrifice. Selflessness. Setting myself aside for another. And of course, the primary example of this is God himself. That as God has done these things for us, that we would present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. And Christian, let me tell you this. If you want to be good at loving the brethren, you have to start by understanding your relationship to God. See, because loving the brethren is going to ask something of you that you are not always going to want to give. It will be interesting to note that at the end of Romans 12, Paul is going to be exhorting things like, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Interesting to say such things in the context of a chapter on how to love one another in the church. Ever thought about that? That vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Don't requite evil for evil. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. These are written in a chapter on how the church is to interact with one another. Hmm, interesting, right? And if that's going to happen, it starts here, Christian. I am the Lord's. I am dead to self. I'm alive to Christ. My body is a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. And this is my reasonable service. And if this is my reasonable service, then not only will I withhold nothing from the Lord, but I will do as I ought unto my brother in the name of the Lord. Because that too is for the Lord and is my reasonable service. Love is setting aside of myself first and foremost unto God and as a subset of my love for God, such humility to be directed toward the brethren. So the text continues in verse 3. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. If we live as a living sacrifice, then by nature what that calls us unto is a manner of living in which we are not elevating ourselves above one another. How do we love the brethren? You love the brethren first by not elevating yourself above them that are around you. Not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Not comparing, not judging, not elevating but rather to say, as the text says, or rather to, as the text says, think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now, when we think about the word sober, we often, uh, in our culture, uh, associate this directly with the opposite of being intoxicated, right? We say if a person is sober, that means that they are not under the influence of some mind-altering Substance. They are in their uh, right mind as it relates to substances. But this is actually only a narrow idea and a much broader concept of sobriety, which simply means that we are in our right minds. And this is interesting. Paul saying that when I think of myself highly, when I elevate myself above others, I'm not thinking properly. I am not sober in mind. I am living in a warped perspective of my own self and of my relationship to the people that are around me. When I elevate myself above those that are around me, I am not thinking clearly because it's simply not true. I'm not thinking soberly. I'm not in my right spiritual 
mind. And then Paul connects this sober thinking more specifically to how we see one another in the body. So we continue in verses 4 through 8. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Or he that teacheth, on teaching. Or he that exhorteth, on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do so with sim- let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth, with diligence. He that showeth mercy, with cheerfulness. So Paul expresses here within the context of thinking soberly that a body, though made up of many individual members or many individual body parts, is yet one body. And we, I'm not going to go to the cross-reference, but we see this very similar idea in 1 Corinthians as it relates to the body, where Paul talks about exalting one part of the body above another. And we see a very similar thing uh, in, in um, uh, Romans. I, I actually am going to go to 1 Corinthians 12 for just a moment here in, in a minute. But we see a very similar thing there. And in the same way, he says, the church, though made up of many individual members, is yet one church, one body in Christ, with Jesus Christ as the head. And where Paul goes with this is highlighting the various gifts and abilities that God has placed within the body. Some prophesy, which we know as we've talked through this, we've been talking through on Tuesday nights, the idea of prophecy is not primarily in the Bible about foretelling the future, but foretelling the truths of God's word. Some are ministers, servants in the church. Some are teachers, some are exhorters, some are givers, some are rulers. Some have the gift of mercy, this idea of being uniquely merciful. So that within the body of believers, there are a multitude of people who each have something to contribute, but not necessarily the same thing to contribute. And this is very important. Because it can be a tendency within our group, within, within any group, to see certain abilities, certain gifts, certain capabilities, and to elevate them above others. And to give honor to certain ones above other ones. But just like the human body, the human body now has a, a two of a few things, right? We have two eyes, we have two ears, we have two of a few things. But there's a lot more one of one of something, and each one being important to the whole, each with its own ability or contribution to the body. Even if there's two of something, each one has its own individual contribution to the body. I have two knees. Each one contributes individually. One can be hurting. Both can be hurting. Neither can be hurting. Whether one's hurting, both hurting, neither hurting, it's going to affect the body. And Paul, again, he does not uh, fully elaborate on the metaphor here in Romans 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, he carries the metaphor forward. And so I am going there. And, And 1 Corinthians 12 says this. He says in verses 14 through 19, For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. 
And if they were all one member, where were the body? The body is not a body if it's only made up of a bunch of the same thing. There's no body that can function if it's all the same thing. A church is not a church if it's only made up of the same thing. Now, what Paul would go on to say and warn against is the idea thus that we are elevating certain parts of the body above the other. Paul, in fact, would go on to say, as a matter of fact, parts which are, are, are less comely, those parts which have less honor in the body are oftentimes more valuable to the body. They're often the things that matter the most, even though they don't necessarily get the most attention. We don't necessarily give the most attention to the thing in our, things in our body which matter the most, per se. And yet, it doesn't mean they don't matter. And it's the same in the body. Now, in this particular body, we being a fairly small body of believers, um, a lot of it revolves around my giftings. And that is not by desire or intent. It's simply by natural virtue of the fact that this is a small body, and so there's not that much going on. But that doesn't mean that anyone else's giftings or value to the body in this room is any less than mine. It really does not. As a matter of fact, the church is, becomes stronger, it becomes more functional as a body as each person lives into the giftings that God has given you and lives them out for the good of the body. And in fact, this is one of the greatest failures of denominationalism as we find it today. That people are elevating some gifts around another or they're congregating by gifts themselves because people are perhaps drawn to a body of believers that share their outlook, share their gifting, share their talents. And it's not just about forming cliques in the church, but the idea that there are even entire churches who are formed around the fact that a certain group of people, their giftings are maybe not understood or appreciated by other people, and so they go form a church where their giftings can be appreciated. And not, not be so, because then what are we doing? We're splintering the body. And as we think on what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 12, the point is this. Each man has a role to play and ought not to elevate himself above another simply because they have a different role to play. That you and I ought not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think because maybe you're an I and someone else is just a knee. And we say just a knee. And you know, eyes get maybe a bit more attention than knees in the body. But when the knee's hurting, the whole body feels it. And when the knees aren't working, the body's not functioning right. And it's going to affect the whole body. And you know those knees are actually pretty important too. And the eye can't say to the knee, I don't need you, any more than the knee can say to the eye, we don't need you. Now, are you able to function as a body without certain things and others? Well, yes. Of course. But you're not going to be at full strength. The body is not going to be fully functional, right? We would call it a handicap. And we call it a handicap because there is a reduction in full functionality when something is not working right or when something is absent from the body. So I am the pastor of this church, but I am also a member of this church. And as the pastor, there's a certain authority that has been given to me, ordained by you all and called by God. But as a member, I have gifts 
to serve the body. As a member, I use those gifts. But so do you. Now, my gifts happen to be a little bit more public-facing as it relates to the body. It's my voice that ends up on YouTube. It's my face that ends up on YouTube. My gifts might make it make more of a public-facing representation of this body. The exercising of my gifts, however, is no more important than the exercising of your gift. It is just as important to the body that you are exercising your gift that I am exercising my gift. And it is certainly not just right or sober thinking for me to be exalted above you in this body for my gift as compared to your gift. Okay, so we're members of the body. We're all members of one body. We are called to be faithful to the gifts that God has given unto us. What does this mean for our interaction one with another? Paul continues, verse 9. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. So verse 9 begins with a list of individual commands. These individual commands from verse to verse are not necessarily directly connected one to another, except to the extent that they are all a reflection of the kind of love that we are called to show one to another in the body. Pastor, what does it mean to love one another in the church? What does it mean to exhibit the kind of brotherly love that 1 John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. If God so love us, we ought also to love one another. What is that kind of love? What is that brotherly love? This is that brotherly love. And Paul begins by saying, let love be without dissimulation. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> that word dissimulation, meaning hiding something under false pretenses. Okay, so Paul, as Paul exhorts begins his exhortation unto love, which we defined last time in 1 Corinthians 13. He says this first, don't fake it. Make it genuine. The first thing that you need to determine when it comes to loving the brethren is that whatever that love means, you're going to make it real. You're not going to fake it. You're not going to pretend. It's not going to be in word only. You are in. You are dedicated to this. You are going to love the brethren as God calls us to love the brethren. Don't love under false pretenses. Don't pretend to love. Really love. Don't play the game. Don't be hypocritical. Love in sincerity and truth. Actually put others above yourself. Not just when it's convenient. Not just when it's easy. Love one another. And this next phrase is connected to it. Have an unhypocritical love, abhorring evil, and cleaving to that which is good. And so loving the brethren looks like rejecting false pretenses. And instead of desiring truth and integrity in our interactions, or excuse me, instead to desire truth and integrity in our actions, and especially in our love. So we abhor that which is evil. We abhor that which is Fake. We abhor that which is pretentious. We abhor that which is hypocritical. And instead we cleave unto that which is right, unto that which is genuine, unto that which is good. We seek unto this kind of love. Verse 10. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. The next command is that this unhypocritical love, this unpretentious love, would be mutual. 
not one-sided attempts by certain in the church to love while others take advantage of this arrangement in selfishness. This is one of the things uh, that, that uh, I have uh, seen in the family and, and, and we deal with from time to time where one of my children determines, and it's so wonderful to see when they say, you know what, I'm going to do what mom and dad and the Bible and, and Jesus are always exhorting us to do and I'm going to love my sister. I'm going to love my brother. And we, you'll see manifestations of that love where where they are sharing their toys and they are deferring to one another and maybe they're doing the chores for one of their siblings and you see this and it's wonderful but then you start to see something else happen the sibling who is being loved says this is this is pretty nice this is working out and they start to milk that and they start to take advantage of it they don't requite it instead they 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 they, they push it to its furthest extent and then the person who is loving says, this isn't, all, all, all this is is me losing out. All this is is me getting the short end of the stick. All this is is me being drained, is me being, uh, uh, me, me, me being uh, uh, like, like a parasite, me being, being completely uh, um, sucked of all of my love and of all of my, my priorities and of all of my time with no requital. And, you know, while it is most certainly the case that the command to love one another is not a conditional command. I don't love you on the basis of how you love me. Those of you particularly who are married know this very well. It is much easier to thrive in love when that love is mutually given. It's much easier for me to love my wife when she's loving me. It's much easier for my wife to love me when I'm loving her. It's much easier for me to have the confidence to pour myself into my wife when I also have the confidence that my wife is going to pour herself into me. Because then we're pouring ourselves into one another and there is in that safety, there is in that mutual uh, enlivening, strengthening, so that I know that even in my sacrifice to my wife, I will not go unrequited and my needs will not be will not lack I will not lack my needs will not go unmet because my wife is looking out for my needs as I'm looking out for hers so we love all men and we're called to be kindly affectioned one to another to have this mutual love but notice that last phrase in honor preferring one another And this connects well to what we saw in Galatians 6, verse 10 a couple of weeks ago. Do good to all men, but especially unto those that are in the household of faith. We honor those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and then we mutually love and prefer one another. When your brother or sister in Christ is in need, their need is supposed to become your priority. That need may be material. It may not be material. That need may be time. You know, sometimes someone just needs an ear. They need to talk. They need to be heard. That need may be emotional investment. That need may be prayer. But the idea here, what does it look like to love the brethren? Have the needs of your brethren on the topmost of your mind. That's the idea. With the confidence that as you prefer the needs of another today... By God's grace and as the model plays out, in your day of need, you can expect the very same in return. I pour into you today 
you pour into me tomorrow. Now, that doesn't mean that I pour into you today and write it down so that tomorrow when it comes along, I look and say, hey, you owe me one. That's not how that works. But I pour you into you today in confidence because I know you love God. That in my day of need, should that day arise, you will pour into me. Now, verses 11 through 13 are connected together grammatically as well. The scriptures say this. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. This chain of commands begins with not slothful in business, literally translated, they're not slothful in diligence. So the idea here is not conducting business one of another in the sense of exchanging of goods or whatnot, but the idea being that as we're loving one another, we are diligent to do so. We're not slothful in doing so. We're not lazy. We're not uh, uh, behind. It's not a, uh, what is your need? And they tell the need and then you wait a week and, and then you come and well, they don't really have a need anymore. Oh, okay. Well, I was here to meet the need. That's no longer a need because the time has passed. The idea here is that the love that we are called to have for the brethren is not only an unhypocritical love and a determined love in its honor and in its preference, but it is zealous and proactive. You know, you don't have to wait for someone to ask to serve them and to help them. You don't need to wait for a prayer request to pray for someone. You don't need to wait to be asked before you give. Instead, of loving the, instead, loving the brethren can be and should be proactive, fervent. That we come together looking for ways to bless one another. I was uh, in Tennessee this past week and I was talking to a gentleman. I, I apparently had met him once before, but it was just a, 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 a very brief time. So I, I kind of met him for the first time. And he was telling me about his experience with church and he'd grown up in the situation and uh, had, had spent time with very large megachurches and, and then ended up in a, in a much smaller church, about 150 people. And he was telling me about his morning routine on a Sunday morning. And one of the things that he did, because he was hypersensitive to this idea that church is not intended to be entertainment. We had a good conversation about the idea that the church is attempting to compete with the world in entertainment. And it's never going to work, right? The church can never be as entertaining as the world is. Uh, The church will never be as entertaining as the things that the world has to offer. But he was talking about this idea. And he was saying how when he gets in the car with his children on Sunday as they're going to church, he he goes through a process of preparation. And one of the things he, he does is he asks the kids, well, why are we going to church? Are we going to church to be entertained? No, Dad, we're not going to church to be entertained. Are we going to church for ourselves? No, Dad, we're not going to church for ourselves. And he says, and I begin to exhort them to think about who it is that they can fellowship with, who it is they can bless, who it is they can target on that day to reach out to while they are at church. The idea here being that I am going to church, certainly to worship my God, but I am going to church in honor to prefer one another. I'm going to church to proactively and to zealously seek out how I might be a a blessing to someone today. So we pour into one another. We are patient with one another. That's a hard one. We pray for one another. We meet each other's needs. And maybe not just on Sunday. You know, we have this kind of Sunday thing as it relates to the church, but how about waking up on a Monday and saying, how can I pray for so-and-so today? Maybe waking up on a Wednesday and saying, maybe... Who can can I go bless today? I'm going to make a batch of cookies. Which church member should I drop that batch off 
at the house today. Few people that we know wouldn't, we wouldn't do that for in this particular um, church if we were going to be a blessing to them, right? Maybe not cookies. Well, bad example, but you get, you get the idea. And when this is really working the way it's supposed to, each of these interactions doesn't need to be a coordinated effort by someone assigned to meet needs, but rather it's an organic effort of each of us investing into one another naturally and fervently unto the end that everyone is cared for, everyone is valued, everyone is respected. And this is how we love the brethren. Now, as we think on these things, we elevate the ideal, of course, right? The Bible is, in fact, a book of ideals. Yes, there are rebukes. Yes, there are examples of failures. But the Bible elevates ideals and calls us to aspire unto those ideals. We do recognize, however, that among interactions in a body of believers, things will not always go very, uh, perfectly well. People are still people. We want to love one another. We want to have this proactive zeal unto that love, but some people are hard to love. Sometimes I'm hard to love. Some people are selfish. Sometimes I'm selfish. Some people have growing to do and need time and patience and care. We've already seen this, patient, right? And just like any human interaction... While the expectation is that love and respect would be a two-way street, as I've said already, your treatment of others in the church is not intended to be conditioned upon their treatment to you. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Even if no one in this church requites you the love that you are showing to them, it is your reasonable service to God to do this. And God will reward you in turn. He will. So that as we love the brethren, we manifest this kind of mutual love and support where we're investing in one another implicitly, but yet we read in verse 14, bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Paul's words here are very similar to Jesus' own command in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them which hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you, and persecute you. Now Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5 is speaking of what he says are your enemies. And in fact, Paul will go on to say the same word, use the word enemy in verse 20, quoting from Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 and 22. And this is interesting because I cannot divorce what Paul is instructing here from the context where Paul says, bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not, as he speaks to what? Interaction in the body. Members one of another. And in this we are reminded that not everyone that sits in the seat of this church has a desire or is in a place where they are ready to be kind, to love others, to be generous and to serve. There are and always will be those who are selfish, self-serving, and immature. They have not graduated to an understanding of the kind of love and selflessness that the Christian life is really about. 
And I'm not talking necessarily about goats among the sheep. I'm not talking necessarily about unbelievers who are among us. As we heighten this principle, we heighten this principle even to the membership. Those who we have identified their, 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 uh, um, th- them as being born again, they having professed that faith, them having borne the fruit of that faith, we having then invited them to be a part of the body and of the membership. But even among them... It will not always be the case that God's people will be generous, desire to serve, and be kind one to another in the way that we would ideally desire. There are and always will be those who are not. And these instead may be divisive, creating relationships of exclusion, eager to argue, quick to take but never to give, I call them spiritual sponges. It's like no matter how much you pour into them, they just absorb it and absorb it and absorb it. And they draw and they squeeze your sponge dry at the same time. Now, they may have blind spots, but they aren't ready to admit it just yet. And they may even be quick to be offended. And we must be patient in the church. Because maturity comes only through one thing, and that's growth. And growth, by definition, is a process which takes time. So that while we must protect the church from those actions which are intended to destroy or to divide, we must also be patient with those who are not in the place they ought to be, or maybe individuals who love the Lord, desire to do what's right, but two people or two families or whatever it might be who just don't get along. Because we're humans, which means that there's going to be people with whom we don't get along. They may even be mean to us. They may persecute us. And the solution is not to fight fire with fire, Christian. And by the way, if it comes to that, if there ends up being situations where there's real problems in the church and we start fighting fire with fire, this church will be over. But instead we bless We bless them which persecute. We bless and curse not. And we'll come back to this idea in a few moments. Continuing in verse 15. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. We often might call this the idea of empathy. Which, of course, empathy is not a good basis by which to make decisions. In the church, we do not rejoice with them that rejoice and weep with them that weep to the extent that in this weeping or this rejoicing, we are making policy decisions for the church. That's not how that that ought to go. This is not a basis. Empathy is not a basis for decision making, but it is essential to relational love one toward another that we seek to understand one another. Again, married couples understand this. I was talking uh, today about that a little bit in marriage counseling. It's important that a husband and wife understand one another. It's also important that an under, a husband and wife understand what they can't understand. That's kind of empathy. I will not always understand my wife. I understand what I don't understand about my wife. And I will just be able to throw my hands up and say, you know what? I know what you need right now. You need to cry. It's okay. I can't fix it. There's nothing I can do about it. You need to cry. Okay, I don't understand it, but go for it. I understand what I don't understand. And I'm going to empathize with it. Now, I'm not going to make fundamental decisions for the family on on, on that empathy, but I'm going to extend it out of relational love. 
We are invested enough in one another to bear one another's burdens, to rejoice with others that rejoice, to weep with others that weep. And you know, both of these can be hard sometimes because we have our own lives to live and maybe you're not weeping in the same way over what they're weeping over. They're sad over something. You're not necessarily sad over that same thing, but you can invest in them. And so weep with them as they weep, not necessarily over the thing of which you're not necessarily invested, but you weep over them for them because you are invested in them. And it's the same with rejoicing. You say, well, pastor, why wouldn't we rejoice with those that rejoice? Have you ever been in a situation where you have not wanted to rejoice with someone that rejoices? Where they've gotten the raise, they've gotten the promotion, they've gotten the good thing, they've gotten the blessing. You would have really liked that yourself. It's all, and, and their ship's coming in and your ship's not coming in and you don't want to rejoice with them. But that's just selfishness, right? But that's just you getting in the way of God. That's just you not being a living sacrifice. That's just you holding on to yourself at the expense of your brother. Because you see that they are having a good, that, that, that they are in a good place, that the Lord is blessing them, that they have seen spiritual victory. And yes, it might, um, it, it, it might not be you, but can you rejoice with them as they rejoice? Can you rejoice in their success, though it's not your success? Can you rejoice in their victory, though it's not your victory? Investing in each other enough to bear one another's burdens and to bear one another's rejoicing. In fact, if we jump back for a moment to Galatians 6, where Paul called for his readers to prefer those that are of the household of faith, just a few verses earlier, that was Galatians 6.10. In Galatians 6 verse 2, he wrote this, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. In this case, he's talking about restoring one who's taken in a fault. A man who's taken in a fault... You don't rejoice over it. You don't, as he shows repentance, you don't cast him out. You restore him. You help him bear the burden of his shame, of his struggles, and bring him back to spiritual strength. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We continue verse 16. Be of the same mind one toward another, Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. The idea of being of the same mind one toward another is not that we develop a hive mind. It is not the idea that we all become a single-minded thinking group of people and ideas. Nope, we're different. And by the way, there's a strength in that. As Paul stated at the beginning of this chapter, those differences are by design. The eye may never actually get it when he's... The, the, the eye may not understand the knee. The knee is very different than the eye. The eye is very different than the nose. The nose is very different than the mouth. The mouth is very different from the ears. They're not necessarily going to have the same priorities in their functioning because they have different functions. So instead, it does not mean that we all create kind of a hive mind or a single-mindedness in that sense, but it means that we all have the same determination to live these things out one toward another. We are living by the same principles, though they may outwork, outwork themselves in a different way. The merciful person is going to work out his love toward the brethren in a different way than the giver. 
And the giver is going to work out his love for the brethren in a different way than the teacher. We are all investing in one another, but that investment might look different. And so as one man is giving material gifts to the church because he is a giver, another man is spending his time and his effort pouring over the word of God to give the people in the church that which the word of God says in a manner that is clear and understandable. And both of them are investing in the church in the way that they are called to invest. They have the same mind, which is I am pouring myself into the church, but they may not necessarily agree on everything or think the same way or have the same strategies. I might not be able to trust that you and I are going to naturally get along, naturally understand one another, organically relate to each other in various topics, find comfort and ease even in interacting with one another on a relational level. But I should be able to trust that you and I are going to both be determined to selflessly love one another, that I am going to love you and you are going to love me. And of course, the key word to that is selfless. Once again. Hearkening back to Paul's call that we present ourselves a living sacrifice. Expressed here that we would not mind high things. Not elevate ourselves above others. But rather condescend to men of low estate. That we don't stand over people, but rather we meet people where they are. And if they are in a place where they need to be helped up, May it be your hand that reaches down to pull them up. And if I'm meeting others where they are, and others are meeting me where I am, then we're going to be walking together in this life in Christ. In honor, preferring one another. And while things will not be perfect, and while there's still going to be personality conflicts, And we're not going to understand one another and we're going to have to understand what we don't understand. Things are going to go pretty well. They will not be perfect. There will be conflict. There will be disagreement. But when love overshadows both sides of an interaction, when I am dead to self, when you are dead to self, and we are alive unto Christ and thus to one another, the end result can and indeed will still be joy and virtue. And this idea of conflict actually overshadows the last few verses of Romans chapter 12. Verse 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. The urge within us to give evil for evil comes from a place within us that wants justice and or vengeance, that wants to see wrongs that are done to us or those that we love requited. Yet we already read, bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. And once again, we see Paul exhort unto this end, that as one who is a living sacrifice, as a man who is dead to self and alive unto Christ, well, perhaps Paul says it best in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Verse 3. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Paul says, ye are dead. If you're dead, meaning you have died to self and you're living unto Christ, well, dead men don't have rights. Your rights are hid with Christ as well. 
Your rights are that which Christ has chosen for you. So then what right do I have to avenge myself? Only the right that God would give me. Except that God has not given me that right. What right have I to recompense evil for evil? Only the right that God would give me. And God has not given me that right. Much to the contrary, that which is honest, that word meaning good or excellent or best, is what I provide in the sight of all men. That when one does evil, I do not recompense evil, but instead I provide that which is right, that which is good, that which is honest in the sight of all men. I do not requite evil for evil. Evil may fall upon me, but I will show the more excellent way. That more excellent way that we studied last time. That more excellent way of 1 Corinthians 13. That charity that beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. That charity that never fails. So that Paul exhorts in verse 18, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. What a exhortation. With every fiber of your being in every situation, but especially among those that are of the household of faith, live peaceably, seek unto living peaceably with all men. Now remember that definition of love. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. So we are not saying here, living peaceably with all men means preferring sin with tranquility and compromise over a confrontation of holiness. No, 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 no. I desire to live peaceably with all men, but I am not going to sit here while a brother in Christ openly sins and not confront. That's not love. Therefore, that is not what we're talking about here. Sin must be addressed. We'll talk more about that when we get to the truth sermon. But whatever it takes for me to live peaceably, whatever sacrifice on my part, if some act of service, if some dedication of time, if some care can bring about peace with my brother or sister in Christ, if some act of humility, if some acknowledgement of fault, if some acknowledgement of Uh, of perception of fault, if those things can bring about peace, if it is possible, I want it and I will seek unto it. And that's not always going to be easy because it's going to grind your gears sometimes because it's not really your problem except it is your problem because it's your brother which makes it your problem. God made it your problem. So as much as lies within you, Live peaceably with all men. And as I've thought through that in the past, I've thought, well, what, what, would, what would stop the ability, what, what would be the maximum of as much as lies within me to live peaceably with all men? And really, the only thing that I've come to in consistency is if they won't. See, because as far as you're concerned, the sky can be the limit. But of course, it takes two to have a relationship takes two to have peace. So maybe it is that you will do everything that you can possibly do to live peaceably with someone and they will, not, they will not be peaceable with you. That's out of your hands. But have you done all you can as a living sacrifice, as one who is dead and your life is hid with Christ and God? Paul then says, verses 19 through 21, Dearly beloved, Avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. 
Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, keep strong hold of our context here. Paul is writing to people in the church about interaction in the church. That's what we've seen here. Yes, this applies to those that are without, as we consider that combined with Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, those who make themselves our enemies for one reason or another, and how much more so then should it apply to those that are within the church, to those relationships which are the most difficult for you to enjoy or to foster, to that person who dislikes you and really, really, really wants you to know how much they dislike you. I wish I could say that we don't have that in our church, but I'm not so naive as to imagine it is so. But believer, it's not your right to avenge yourself. It's not your right to recompense evil for evil. What is it, what is right for you to do? Do right. What is right for you is to overcome evil with good. You say, well, Pastor Paul does use the enemy He invokes the idea of enemy here, and I told you he's quoting there. He's quoting from Proverbs. And so he's using a principle from the Proverbs here as it relates to those who are at odds with us. It's not necessarily saying that we are enemies within the church, but rather he is quoting a principle from Proverbs connecting us to this idea of what to do when there is one who is at odds with you. And of course, there's a lot of speculation as to what this means, that you will keep, heap coals of fire on his head. There's various speculations. Some would say that this is actually a, the idea that, and, and you've seen this with children, right, where one child uh, is kind to another child and that actually makes the child more angry. And some believe that that's what it means, that, that you will actually be, be uh, by doing this, um, doing... <laughs> doing more to, to frustrate them than if you fought back with them and you're still being right. I, I, don't, I don't like that idea. I don't think it's within the spirit of what the text is saying here. But there's some other theories as well, uh, some related to uh, those who culturally would carry coals of fire from one place to another and they would carry them in a basket on their head. So the idea of keeping coals of fire on their head would be that you are assisting them in the process of doing their duties. Uh, others that, that are speaking to the idea that you are, you are actually, by doing right before God, you are expressing to them these overtures of peace. And as they are refusing these overtures of peace, it is God that is, there's more judgment that is being heaped upon them before the throne of God. That one seems to be uh, relatively consistent in my mind. There's not a real uh, um, direct um, singular consensus as to what this means, heaping coals of fire on his head. Perhaps you can come up to me afterwards and solve the problem for me with things that you have heard in the past. But the essence of the idea is this. That we are doing right to others. We are leaving the rest to God. And that we are allowing evil to be overcome, not by doing evil back, but by doing good. Because that is actually what overcomes evil. Not getting into the mud with those who are slinging mud. But by doing right. Believer, it is not your right to avenge yourself. The operative purpose is that the church might function as our Savior has commanded it to do. No real need for application this evening. Because, in a sense, the whole sermon is that. It's the blessing of preaching Paul's application section. 
12 through 16, it's all application. Every, every verse I preach is application in, 12, in Romans 12 through 16. But let me ask you this. How can you apply this to your heart? How is your heart tonight, Christian? How are your interactions? And let's, let's just make it easy tonight. How about just within the body of Christ? Just within this church? Just within the people of this church? Are you loving the brethren as you ought? Are you blessing even those that might curse you? Are you condescending to men of low estate? Are you, not, are you thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think? Are you fervent in your determination to selflessly serve others above yourself? Is your love free from hypocrisy? Instead, is it sincere and determined? You say, well, pastor, we're a very small church. You know, we don't have all of the ministries. We don't have uh, uh, the, the various opportunities that we might normally see in a church to, to really pour out and invest in, in bus ministries and, and helps ministries and, 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 and visitations and these sorts of things. And we don't have all of that in this church. How is it possible that I can love the brethren? There's a pretty good list here of ways that, that, that from a purely human interaction standpoint, we can be doing this thing that First John is calling us to do. All so that each of us might do what God has not just called us to do, but designed us to do as a part of the functioning body of Christ. Effective for Christ in all things, each using our gifts and abilities for Christ's sake, Unto the end that we might edify the body in love. And this is the goal. The command of 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God. For God is love. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.